0: Hello, I'm Josephine Burton and welcome to the Dash Arts podcast, seeing the world through an artistic lens. We're on a journey to eutopia at Dash Arts, exploring what it means to be European and what we mean by Europe. And today we have a treat for you as our long-term friend and collaborator at Dash, Sophie Austin, pitches in with her contribution to our European series. I loved learning about Ingrid Bergman through Sophie's conversations, particularly hearing of Ingrid as a strong, independent woman determined not to lose her distinct voice in the whirlwind of Hollywood and its cinematic tyrants and legends. I hope you love it too. Please do share the love with your friends and rate us on iTunes or wherever else you get your podcasts. I'll be back in a fortnight with our podcast focusing on the extraordinary Dutch Curaçaoan director, artist, curator and provocateur Felix de Roy. In the meantime, I leave you with Sophie.
1: My name is Sophie Austin and I'm a theatre and film director. I'm also creative associate at Dash Arts and have been invited to host an episode for this podcast in which I'll be asking the question... What would Ingrid Bergman do? When asked to consider a subject for this podcast, focusing on European cultural icons for Dash Art's European series, Bergman was not at the top of my list. In fact, I'm ashamed to say few women were. I started thinking about this podcast back in February 2020. The news then was full of accounts from the trial of Harvey Weinstein and opinion pieces on the problems in Hollywood and in other industries where opportunities vary wildly for men and women. BBC newsreaders were campaigning for equal pay. Susan Fowler's book about being a female engineer at Uber had just come out. Everywhere I looked, there seemed to be stories focusing on female inequality. I wanted desperately to celebrate a woman who may have known some of these struggles, but who could also offer an inspiring journey through them. On wet Tuesday morning in early March, I met up with my good friend, actress Anna Lindgren. Anna is one of those wise and brilliant women who listens intently and then comes up with the most perfect, simple answer. And on this day, her answer was this.
2: I have, like so many others before me, I'm sure, a crush on Ingrid Bayman. If I could bring someone back to life just to share one dinner, one outing, one cinema trip, it would be stupendous to spend just one moment in the company of the captivating Ingrid. Her infectious ways, Racer sharp focus and deep-rooted integrity fascinates me. I would chat to her about art and about her artistry, as well as about her eventful life on and off the screen. Then I would pick her brains about her ways of coping through adversity and media scrutiny in a male-dominated world that seemed full of people telling her what to do and how to be. I think she appears as infatuating on screen now, as I guess she must have been to those who had the great fortune of meeting her in real life. The sheer stubbornness and almost innocent conviction and belief that acting had chosen her and not the opposite led Ingrid to become one of the most successful movie stars of all times.
1: Sitting in this cafe with my captivating Swedish friend telling me about another captivating Swede sold it for me. I decided I wanted to know all I could about Ingrid Bergman, in the hope that by exploring her journey I'd find some nuggets of wisdom that could reassure me in today's crazy world. Of course, I didn't realise then just how crazy the world was going to get, or the influence Ingrid was going to have on me over the coming months. In an ideal world, I would have brought all my contributors together to share their impressions, stories and thoughts on Ingrid's life. You would have been there too, of course, and like the dash cafes of old, we would have watched her films, talked, shared questions, and answers over a glass of wine or two. But instead, I've had the pleasure of intimate conversations with the voices you will hear. While my baby is napped, these voices have spoken to me from across the sea, from a quiet corner in their home, even from their bed. So at times the recordings might be scratchy or echoey, and I apologise for this. But I hope you will understand, and perhaps you will find yourself listening to this in an unexpected place, given the times." The voices you will hear are those of Anna Lindgren, a Swedish actor living in London, Stig Borkman, a Swedish film director and film critic, Dr Hannah Yellen, Senior Lecturer in Media and Culture at Oxford Brookes University, and Dr Ellen Wright, Senior Lecturer in Cinema and Television History at De Montfort University. What I have learnt from putting this episode together over this strange time is that you've got to roll with the punches and have strength in your convictions. Ingrid Bergman is the perfect companion for this moment. But how did Ingrid Bergman come about? Let's start at the beginning with her mum and dad.
2: There's a brilliant story how he met uh, Frida or Friedel, uh, as most people called her. So she was, um, he was painting in a park in the year 1900, as he, he did most days. And she was, she was visiting Stockholm with her parents from Germany, from Kiel. She was about 15 years younger than him, but totally fascinated by his art. I think she was only 16 at the time. And um, stopped and, you know, they got chatting and uh, she just loved what he did. And, and I think she fell in love with his art and with him and of course her parents disapproved because he was 15 years older, he was a painter, he had no money, <laughs> he, he wasn't what they were hoping for for their daughter at all. But I think they exchanged some form of uh, ring or something when, she, uh, when they st- said goodbye and she wore it afterwards on a necklace and her parents very much disapproved with this. So for the next seven years Justice, who is then to become Ingrid's father decided he was determined to to get her basically so he um, decided to open a photographic shop and to sort his life out, to have a bank account which he didn't have, which was one of the things they massively disapproved of so he opened this shop and he uh, starts to sell photographs and take pictures and you know, very much what he was doing with Ingrid as well, the little films and things later on And uh, then seven years on, he proves to them that he now has a bank book and he has, you know, a decent job and his own shop and everything else. So they couldn't refuse anymore. Although they didn't really want their daughter to go and live in Sweden with him, but they thought, okay, he's he's worked for it. (laughs) So they got married in 1907. And then, very sadly, they um, well, they she got pregnant two years later, I think, and the child died at birth. And then, two years after that, another child that died after two weeks. Uh, so, loss and loss again. And then, in 1915, finally, a healthy baby that they named after the Princess Ingrid. <laughs> Uh, blissfully happy for two years until Friedel passes away. And then from then on it it sort of became Ingrid and and justice And uh, a very encouraging uncle who thought Ingrid was marvellous and she did poetry readings and things for bohemians. (laughs) And obviously the father wanted her to become an opera singer she, uh, I think she did classes for about three years and then didn't really want to carry on.
3: I mean, see all those loving portraits of her and when she's posing for her father. uh, I mean, she was an actress already at age 10 when you see her in in the dresses, both in in the photos he did of her and and in the short films he, he made with her.
2: It's quite innocent, I think. It was just an enjoyment from her side to have that kind of attention and being in front of the camera and just feeling free, like she said, and relaxed. And for him to enjoy... I mean, they had that little film of her mum that she didn't see until later on, I think, and didn't realise the importance of But I don't ever think that she felt like she was lacking anything because her mum was just a distant, abstract memory and the dad obviously gave her all the attention and love that she needed and she had her aunts and they went to visit relatives in Germany regularly and uh, so I think those films were kind of yeah a little love story between father and daughter so she was about 13 and he found out he had stomach cancer Um, he didn't want to see he didn't want her to see him suffer so when he got more ill, he actually went off with his new lady that he'd met, Greta, to Bavaria so that Ingrid wouldn't see him deteriorate and he sort of said farewell knowing that he wasn't going to see her again and he didn't want her to see him die. Uh, So that's how that last, yeah, part of his life happened really. So he was only 58 when he died and she was, yeah, 13. And yeah, her world must have fallen apart because they were everything for each other, really.
3: First, her mother died when Ingrid was three years old. Then her father died when she was 13. She was taken care of by an aunt who died more or less in Ingrid's arms when one year after. So at age 14, she's alone in the world. And of course, for anybody else, this could be devastating and, and uh, but I, th- I think this is my theory that Ingrid just said I will make it I will show them and uh, I will make it and this kind of um, character or this kind of drive in her uh, went through all her life.
2: She then goes to live with her uncle and aunt Otto and Hulda And they have five children, plus Ingrid. So she suddenly has three older brothers, two sisters, and her. They're quite strict, quite religious, I think. And she really has to convince them that she needs to audition for drama school (laughs) because they don't particularly approve either. And she got one shot. They said, basically, yeah, you have one chance. Before we go
1: any further, I'd like to properly introduce you to Stig Borkman, a Swedish self-confessed film buff, filmmaker and film journalist. He is the director of Ingrid Bergman in her own words, a brilliant and celebrated documentary that uses diary entries, letters and her own home movies to give us a very personal take on her life. Stig was granted access to Ingrid's archive by, well, I'll let him tell you the story.
3: I had never thought of making a movie about Ingrid Bergman. But just by chance, uh, what can it be, like uh, eight, nine years ago, I was at the Berlin Film Festival. They had a big exhibition of Ingmar Bergman. And uh, Isabella Rossellini was uh, head of the jury during the film festival. And I was there together with Harriet Anderson, you know, the famous Swedish actress who worked in so many of Birdman's movies. So Harriet and I, we were out having dinner one evening together. I have made two films with Harriet also, so we we were very close friends since way back. So we were having dinner together, and somebody came from the festival and said that Isabella Rossellini was on her way because she wanted to meet with Harriet. So we stayed at that restaurant, and there came Isabella together with two friends, Guy Madden and his uh, girlfriend. And we were sitting at uh, a round table, and uh, Isabella was sitting close to me, and suddenly during this uh, meeting, she just turns to me and says, shall we make a film about Mama? Of course, I, I knew Ingrid Bergman and her films, and I had read her autobiography my life, of course, so I, I already had it here. But I had no idea uh, of this very rich material which she, she saved, and, you know, she was filming herself. I, I, had, I had about seven, eight hours of her own home movies which you've seen I've I've used a lot in in the movie as well. So that was, of course, news.
1: What did that reveal to you in terms of who she was, did you think,
3: watching her films? It reveals something about a very determined and very strong woman living in a time when women shouldn't be like her at all. But I think... I think it came from the very severe losses in her life.
1: So what would Ingrid Bergman do with an early life peppered with such extraordinary loss? She would make the most of her one chance to get to drama school. What else did she have to lose? The audition was short and she assumed she hadn't got in, but it was short because it was clear to those watching her, here was a talent that needed to be developed. She attended the Royal Drama School in Stockholm for only one year, when she was hired by a Swedish film studio and began making movies full time. By the time Hollywood came calling, she was 24, a successful actor in Europe, a wife and mother to a baby girl, Pia. So 1939
4: is um, a really sort of interesting period within Hollywood. It's Hollywood at the absolute height of its powers. Um, It's what we call the classical era, which is when um, a cluster of five studios known as the Big Five, uh, which were uh, Warner Brothers, RKO, MGM and Paramount, uh, when they owned essentially everything. They owned the the means of production, distribution and exhibition uh, at a period where um, American cinema dominated um, entertainment, you know, so it's a license to print money, you know, so there's huge excesses, um, uh, you know, sort of the, you know, the studios are known as dream factories and they look, you know, they've got a really distinct uh, look to them. And they're, um, Hollywood is a site of pilgrimage that um, the public goes to, to see if they can catch a glimpse of of their favorite stars in situ. Um, you know, and it's very, you know, if you think of sort of about the British context, Hollywood, um, uh, Hollywood is you know this sunny, bright place where dreams are made and you think about you know nineteen thirty nine Britain um you know we're just entering the second world war. America doesn't enter the war until forty one you know so it's a very um very different space to um uh Britain at that time and so of you know Bergman slots into this as a she's a Swedish star she's born in Stockholm and she's a celebrated actress uh in. In Sweden, she does a of, an awful lot of work in theatre and then does a number of smash Swedish films that make her a really big star. And as a result, uh, Selznick, who uh, produced the mega hit Gone with the Wind in 1939, headhunts her and just won't leave her alone, basically, until she says, yes, all right, I'll come over to America and I'll work for you. Um, so, yeah, she heads over this celebrated star uh, and, and heads over to America and arrives, you know, sort of and is a little bit starstruck herself, I think. But also she's, you know, she's quite exotic because she's European and um, she's got that exotic appeal as well. So it's a really interesting time to be in Hollywood um, because it's at the very height of its powers. I'm Ellen Wright, I'm Senior Lecturer in Cinema and Television History at De Montfort University and my area of specialism is looking at the representation and understandings of uh, women in the media but in a historic context. I'm particularly interested in what we call classical era Hollywood from the sort of 20s through to the 1960s and I'm interested in looking at the way that um, femininity is represented and female sexuality and how that maps onto our ideas of class in particular.
5: I'm Dr. Hannah Yellen, Senior Lecturer in Media and Culture at Oxford Brookes University. Uh, and my research expertise is in a contemporary celebrity culture. And yes, uh, that is a, a, a valid um, and a flourishing academic field and an important thing for us all to um, investigate. So I look at the way we treat and talk about women in the public eye um, And I consider that that has a lot to tell us about the status of all women in society.
4: It swings two ways with Hollywood mothers, essentially. Um, Yeah, there's the hushing up of the fact that they are mothers, you know, even if the the person's maybe settled and married and got a home and whatever. Because if we're talking about 1939 still, you know, and for a long time afterwards, women, (laughs) women weren't shown pregnant, It was seen to be embarrassing. You didn't show a woman's bump. It was unseemly. So women, if they got themselves pregnant, you know, these big mega American stars, you know, and sort of 39s and 40s is the era of the women's picture where there were huge female stars. But they would just have to sort of take a holiday for around about nine months and be sort of uh, taken out of the private eye so that you wouldn't see their bump during that time. And then they'd be reintroduced back into the public eye again once they'd had their baby and they'd started their very extreme exercise regime to make sure that they were absolutely. absolutely perfect physically all over again you've got that hiding of pregnancy, but then equally as well, you have other stars I mean the classic example would be somebody like Joan Crawford who couldn't have children so adopted, and the way in which the media wouldn't leave her alone as a mother, she's cast as this absolutely perfect mother you a magazine article after magazine article after magazine article of her with Christina, dressed in exactly the same outfits, The art, this almost sort of sickening view of motherhood, so it swung from one extreme to the other, kids were either absolutely absent or this utter fetishisation of the mother figure and the home builder, which, again, you know, you see in Hello magazine and whatever else, you know, it's exactly the same as as nowadays. Nothing's really changed.
5: Well, I think more often we hear about women um, taking a step back from their Hollywood or their high profile careers to focus on motherhood when when motherhood is being talked about. Not the other way around, not, we don't, you know, the the narrative of the woman leaving her child for her career, that is a much more rare narrative and if it is it's not celebrated, it's not, um, because of the fetishisation of motherhood that Ellen talks about, it's not discourse that you get that's necessarily, um positive and also because um the other reason that when these women when these beautiful women do become mothers it's not necessarily if either it's that celebration of the woman as homemaker who's stepping away from her career or it's hushed because motherhood is seen as anathema to sexuality and these stars you know in their fully kind of commoditized function in the star system, whilst their respectability is carefully policed, their sexual allure is also carefully exploited. And to move from the category of alluring star um, to mother it, it, it kind of in the collective imagination is a desexualizing, process because we we can't handle the idea of the sexuality of mothers Um, and so to maintain the sexual allure or carefully managed around the bounds of respectability though it is motherhood and this kind of de-sexing that comes with it could be harmful to box office power it's all of these competing irreconcilable demands on celebrity fe- femininity on the female star to be all these things simultaneously to you know to be sexy and to be pure and yeah and, and and motherhood is a little bit of a spanner in the works for all of those at being as it is a kind of evidence of the sex that has been had um whilst also needing to be contained and sexless um because you know culture can't really cope with that It's worth saying, uh, when we talk about uh, the Hollywood that Bergman was entering in 1939, uh, on the level of representation, so the kinds of scripts, the kinds of roles, uh, the kind of tropes that we're seeing in the movies at that time, I mean, that's really interesting as well because it's another site of these tensions uh, between the kind of deeply regressive tropes and gender roles and also what a woman can be. So you've got a lot of you know, movies that the stories within them ending with melting into the hero's embrace, right? A kind of really patriarchal restoring to heterosexual containment, I suppose. And Now, don't get me wrong. There's lots of really interesting strong female characters in 1930s cinema. But the common trope in so many of the storylines of the era is that these difficult, willful, complex, intelligent women end up safely ensconced in or domesticated by the
4: male romantic lead at the end. Uh, Hollywood's very nepotistic and, you know, it's very difficult to get your foot in the door. Um, It's an immensely attractive proposition uh, to people, especially, you know, sort of as you've got like uh, the Wall Street crash, for example, and jobs are becoming much harder to come by. Uh, Hollywood is very popular at that point in time. Cinema is very popular. So you get this mass exodus of would-be, wannabe actors heading over to Hollywood to see if they can make some money um, there. Um, But, you know, this, this doesn't go away. People, you know, still want to be movie stars. They want the dream life. They've seen it sold in magazines. They've seen it up on the cinema screen. Why wouldn't you want a taste of that? If your life is very, very different to that, it seems incredibly attractive. So loads and loads of people rocking up. And basically you've got a surfeit then of really young, really attractive women and men. Unfortunately, the basest of nature's um, takes over here and we get the emergence of the casting couch. Um, so it's it's a real sort of dog-eat-dog dog world. There's lots of political machinations going on as well because, you know, this is such an influential form. The government are very interested in, in Hollywood because of the potential here to sort of uh, win people over to particular groups of ideas, you know, the influence of Hollywood, that sort of a thing. It's, like I say, we're we're back to the idea of it's a really interesting period and it brings out the very best and and the very
3: worst in people. They wanted to change her. Selznick wanted to change her and she said, you can't change my name and you can't change me. If you want to do that, I'll go home and I'll continue to make movies in Sweden. She had that courage. She was 25 years old when she made her first American movie. But she had that courage to, to tell this big producer that I don't care, take me as I am.
4: You can go online and you can have a look at um, footage from test shots that Selznick shot of her, very, very early on in her career in America, as she's sort of just about to be uh, making into mezzo. And as they clap a uh, clapperboard, it says on the clapperboard, test shot, Bergman, no makeup. And she looks stunning, absolutely (laughs) stunning. She's really fresh-faced and, you know, and just, yeah, just looks ace.
3: And you can see from this test film that um, uh, they made in Hollywood when she came there that she was, I mean, she's lovely to watch that two-minute thing, but also she's flirting with the camera. She... She is so secure there in the camera, so sweet at the same time, but she has this security that she will make it.
1: She arrived in Hollywood, a new mum, an experienced actress in Europe, but unaccustomed to this new American world. What would Ingrid Bergman do? She surrounded herself with a few strong women. From Kay Brown, the talent scout, who brought her to the attention of David Selznick, to her dialect coach, these women had her back, as Anna explains.
2: There's three main women, they kind of feature certainly in letters and things, which is Kay, who then, well, initially got her over to Hollywood, really, after seeing Intermezzo, the Swedish version, um, with Jösta Ekman. And uh, she took the ferry over to Sweden and met Ingrid in person. And she was amazing at spotting talent and good scripts. And had seen Ingrid and been blown away and and um, also needed to convince Selznick that it was a good idea. But then of course she got over to Stockholm and thought oh here's a young woman with a new baby newly married maybe this is not right for her timing wise. Um, but Ingrid wanted to go <laughs> so I don't think it took that much convincing And then, uh, yeah, that's where the journey started and the friendship started as well. I think there was a trust that was built from that moment really where she obviously had her back as well, it wasn't just a business relationship because she did genuinely care about her as a person. I think Kay cared about Ingrid being happy and yeah, recognized that she was an extraordinary person probably quite early on. And then of course, once she came over to Hollywood, is the encounter with Selznick and Irene Selznick's um, wife who also takes her under her wing a little bit and and I think right from the word go when she's sort of swept into these parties and fancy dinners and things she's there as a steady knowledgeable character and also helping her recognize who's who of the business at that time as a new arrival and so that's uh, sparked that friendship and then the third one that I'm aware of is Ruth Roberts who um, she's her dialect coach and she uh, she starts working with Ingrid quite early on I think as soon as she got to Hollywood because she didn't feel her well I don't think anyone felt her English was up to scratch really <laughs> so she's helping her with dialect and everything else um, so she had these pillars around her I think right from the word go which probably really helped being new and young and naive far from home away from family.
1: With this support Ingrid Bergman dominated golden era Hollywood. She made 10 films in this time starring opposite the likes of Humphrey Bogart and Gregory Peck. She made three films with Alfred Hitchcock and was nominated for four Academy Awards winning the Best Actress Award for her role in Gaslight. She didn't let herself get pigeonholed though. Early on her second Hollywood film to be precise.
3: She was offered the, the part of the, of the nice girl and Lana Turner, who was the vamp at uh, Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer, was, of course, to, to play the, the whore or the, the prostitute. And Ingrid said, no, I want it the other way around. She never wanted to be put in a, to have a label on herself, and a label which uh, would diminish her talents in, in any way or diminish her as, as, a, as a person, but especially her talents. I mean, sh- she probably said, I'm an actress. And uh, as an actress, I can, I, can act, I can be several persons. That's my job
2: this is what I love as well. She didn't sail on this, oh, I'm so beautiful and gracious and gorgeous. She just took on really interesting roles and flew with them and it didn't matter. I mean, it was great that she had this wonderful stage presence, but that's not at the heart of her work.
4: Probably my, my favourite role that she's in is in Casablanca, because Casablanca's I would say, my, one of my top five films of all time. I, I just love it. I love... Um, the film as a whole, and she plays a really interesting part in that, this sort of very um, Madonna-slash-whore character. You know, she's clearly uh, figuratively and literally been around a lot, um, and and that offers something really interesting into the mix of the film. Um, and, she, you know, again, she's just shot really beautifully throughout the film. You can't deny it. You know, she just looks absolutely stunning in it. I'm going to say... Um, icon of female
5: heroism, Joan of Arc, um, because it's such a deviation um, as a role, um, you know, such a deviation um, from type. I mean, it, you know, there's one that doesn't end up uh, in a romantic clinch uh, in the kind of, you know, style of uh, common ho- Hollywood films uh, of the era. Um, so I'm going to pick that one just purely
1: for, because it was such a departure. It, when, again it, it just absolutely defines who she is in terms of her determination to make the work she's interested in and she went on to, to perform Joan of Arc on stage didn't she later on in her life so I think
5: right that character- and, and the diversity of her work as well um you know compare Casablanca which is an iconic um to Joan of Arc which is iconic um but you know they're, they're barely recognizable
1: Cary Grant famously said There are only seven movie stars in the world Whose name will alone induce American bankers To lend money for movie productions And the only woman on that list Is Ingrid Bergman But instead of getting complacent Ingrid was on the lookout for the next adventure
2: Dear Mr. Rossellini I saw your film Open City And Payson And enjoyed them very much if you need a Swedish actress who speaks English very well, who has not forgotten her German, who's not very understandable in French and who, in Italian, knows only te amo, I am ready to come and make a film with you. Ingrid Bergman.
3: She, tired of, she was tired of Hollywood. So when Rossellini came, it was uh, such a challenge another a new challenge for her and she took it.
1: What Rossellini offered was a leading role in his neorealist film Stromboli. Ingrid plays Karen, a displaced Lithuanian in Italy who marries a fisherman and is taken to live in his village on a volcanic island. The film was shot on the island of Stromboli and there under the blazing sun, amongst the villagers who became extras, the fishermen who acted opposite her and away from the trappings of a Hollywood studio and the glare of the paparazzi, Bergman and Rossellini fell in love. She says she fell for his artistry and passion. She had never come across anyone like him. As the film progressed, she became pregnant. Still married to Petter Lindstrom and with a 13-year-old daughter living in America, there was uproar. She was fiercely and unforgivingly judged. Hannah and Ellen explain why.
5: The investment in Bergman's image yeah as as Ellen described it uh you know being tied to these ideas of naturalness and and purity and and you know her, her wholesome Swedishness and and all underpinning all of that is a kind of um the kind of white supremacy a kind of you know the kind of The white woman as star, it's talked about in the field of celebrities, celebrity studies. So the kind of specific white femininity that she embodied, you know, that is a a regressive, morally loaded concept um, of purity that doesn't have space for the complexity of adult women's sexual agency and the mess that accompanies sexuality and adultery.
4: She heads on over there uh, to work in European cinema, where we all know, you know, all their films are all about sex, anyway. And really, you know, these 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 Europeans, you know, they've got these awful s- sexual habits, and you know, and 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 they're not like us here here in America, who are morally upstanding, so on and so forth. So this idea of you know, well, she always was European, and she's just going back to, to the kind of people who she should be hanging around with, really. And you get you get them. Um, there's a senator who stands up in the US Senate and condemns her and says she's a powerful force for evil just like Seriously, mate, she's having a baby, you know, to, for goodness sake. But it's it's all part of, you know, that's part of posturing around sort of, you know, there are broader politics at play there anyway, you know, moving against Hollywood and Hollywood as this idea as being corrupting as well. So this, you know, the senator's sort of taking his opportunity there to sort of condemn not only Bergman, but Hollywood as well in, in one sort of fell, you know, swoop. They, they find, you know, the sort of the story breaks and the paparazzi go bananas for it and just won't leave them alone she's on this little secluded island making this film but even in this secluded island she finds out that everybody's talking about her you know that it's such massive news and you know the news breaks basically because she might have a baby bump and then once the, the speculation started just like with celebrities now that's it you know the story just can't be quashed and it just gets bigger and bigger and of course as a bump gets bigger and bigger it just becomes more and more of a story at this moment in time as well um it's been going on for a little while but there's there is this competition between american cinema and various other national cinemas like italian cinema um and so you know this this competition ends up playing out you know it's it's quite unpleasant in all sorts of ways but even the american film industry start you know starts this idea of you know sort of the the um the sexually deviant uh, european cinema uh, really starts to pervade and it's a way of knocking the competition in all sorts of ways and she's gone off to the the competition and i think that really smarts the people who marketed stromboli are utter geniuses so what you've got is uh bergman uh you know sort of re- in the arms reclining in the arms of of her male co-star in this passionate embrace juxtaposed over the top of bearing in mind stromboli is a little island with a volcano on it and you know so you've got these these two stars in this really passionate embrace and the volcano is exploding in this sort of Freudian imagery. And uh, yeah, it just, um, I'm trying to think what the the tagline is, something, it's raging island, raging passions. You know, so they're they're completely using this star scandal to market the film. It's like, you know, basically, well, we can't control it,
2: stuff it, we'll just go with it. When Hollywood had officially kind of uh, said you're not well or America the Senate (laughs) you know welcome back I think that was a low low point definitely where she really she thought her career was over what had she done thrown it all away for this marriage Was I don't know how happy it was at any particular time but I don't think it was ever an easy one
4: when she was with Rossellini, she ultimately married him. And then he was incredibly controlling. He wouldn't, he wouldn't let her make films with other people, but their films together didn't work. So she, you know, she had to be really brave to step away from Rossellini there because he really was attempting to control her really quite firmly and was isolating her as well. He'd clear off and make films and leave her on her own with the kids, with nobody else to keep her company.
3: There was a crisis, of course, with her first daughter, Pia, when ingrid abandoned the family and 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 uh, the husband the swedish husband and just moved to to italy and and got her first son roberto out of uh, what you say well out of wedlock yes but of course pia was curious of her mother and when she turned 18 she wanted to see her and she came to Italy, as you you know in the in the movie, and she stayed all summer taking care of the siblings uh, the younger siblings, and she came back the next summer so in some way, even if it was a hard and tough time for for her growing up as a teenager, she couldn 't resist the mother and I mean they are all four of them talking very lovingly about their mother in my movie and I, I never got the feeling that this is—they do this just for for my film, but it's based on you know, very tender and very true feelings.
1: Stig's film captures so beautifully Ingrid's relationship with her children. It feels that because of her choices, not despite them, they grew to admire and love her. She found herself stifled in Italy, not by her growing family, whom she filmed with the same loving gaze that her father's camera had cast over her but by her film director husband.
2: Yeah, she was doing a play that she tot- he t- was totally not supportive of because it involved some homosexuality which he was really against and thought that they might- their son might become homosexual by watching it. <laughs> and uh, um, he was saying, you know, half the audience are going to leave half, you know, after, if not before, definitely during the interval. Uh, but... Of course they didn't and she got the most amazing standing ovation at the end, Um, the kind of reaction she hadn't had since playing Joan of Arc and uh, she saw him sort of standing in the wings and then I think that's the moment when she realized that the marriage was over but it's also that kind of she just had this conviction and strength I think when she'd made up her mind whatever it was about in life That's what she went for. And, you know, even if she knew deep down he didn't want her to do it, she went ahead and did it anyway (laughs) because that's what she needed to do. What Ingrid needed to do was to go back to Hollywood and her good friend
1: Kay Brown, the woman who first discovered her for Selznick, was on hand to help and secured her a part in Anastasia. What had she got to lose?
2: Particularly after the scandal episode and the Italian years, it was even more you know, whatever got to lose in a way, because, yeah, she really didn't. I mean, she'd been at the rock bottom of their esteem. So yeah, the the studio took a great risk having her back with Anastasia, but actually, for her, if, if it was a flop, it was never going to be as bad as not being allowed back into the country, surely, this is going to be, yeah, okay, that wasn't a box office hit. On to the next project.
1: Anastasia was a big success, securing Ingrid her second Academy Award for Best Actress. Bergman famously said, I've gone from saint to whore and back to saint again, all in one lifetime. Hannah explains why.
5: Well, she's got a very powerful um, star image. So, um, star image is a term that we use in celebrity studies. Um, that so accounts for the fact that, as as Ellen alluded to earlier, um, with a celebrity, with a star, you're never talking about the real person, um, but actually you're talking about a complex layer of different texts um, or kind of strands of gossip or fact and you know the difficulty of teasing between those and all these layers that contribute to their image. And some of these will be coherent and sometimes these will be irreconcilable and we've already talked about some of those so we've got her iconic roles her kind of box office track record we've got her European her origin story you know of her coming over from Sweden as an already established and celebrated star Um, we've got her beauty uh, we've talked about her sexuality uh, and then you know this complexity around that in combination with her motherhood and then and then uh you know later in her career or mid-career onwards i suppose um we've got the scandals outside her film roles and um you know the information that does start to emerge um despite you know the attempts at a kind of carefully controlled narrative um that's common at that time we have this kind of wider life story or, or, or gossip or scandal or whatever we want to call it. And so all of those layers together create an incredibly potent, um, powerful s- star image, as we call it.
1: Ingrid carried on having an extraordinary career working in Hollywood and Europe, on stage and screen. She was hugely respected and continued to make bold choices in terms of the roles she chose to take. I asked Anna and
2: Stig how much her Swedishness shaped her decisions. As long as I've done my best you can't do more and it f- feels like Ingrid definitely had a sense of that here I am take it or leave it <laughs> uh, and Swedish women I think do a lot more than than women in other parts of the world today definitely a worth and a, a sense of equality to men that is rare women are paid the same, they have the same, it comes from the whole social system how it's set up, women stay at home with the children, men stay at home with the children um, it's equal rights on, on such a different level and, and even it starts at childhood actually, children are respected and have a space in, in society as well to a much greater extent than, I mean I can speak of, I've lived in France, I've lived here I've spent a lot of time in in Guatemala and other places. And and I think actually, yeah, from the places I've been and spent any length of time, it's by far the place where you feel that everyone is valued on the same level in a way that I haven't encountered anywhere else.
3: I grow up uh, here in Stockholm. I'm the oldest of three brothers. And uh, both my parents worked as journalists. Uh, My mother was a fashion and and, uh, arts and crafts journalist. During then, my parents divorced when I was 13. But uh, my mother, she continued to work as a journalist all all her life. And and, uh, just like me, (laughs) she never stopped. In general, I I would say that very often both parents worked and they could fulfill to some extent, I guess some women didn't have their dream work.
2: And
1: and the and the and the share of the childcare, because obviously there was some what was interesting about Pia was that she was looked after by her father, which obviously is what happened to Ingrid as well. Obviously her mother died, but there's this sense that Ingrid Bergman didn't feel that Pia needed to be looked after by her mother as the sole carer, or the primary no. carer. That no. a father, a father looking after a child, is is as equal as a
2: mother looking after a child.
3: Yeah, yeah, no, I, I I feel that too.
2: I was thinking also why she had this urge to leave Sweden and do bigger things. It's it's that whole thing of uh, big fish in a small pond, isn't it? And I think. I can slightly relate on a very different level to that always feeling like Sweden's all very well but it's too safe and it's not it's lacking excitement because it's it's easy and you're well looked after and it's good quality of life and you're equal and everything else it, it kind of it lacks a bit of excitement and tension and passion I'm not surprised she ended up with an Italian for a while you know it's a bit rah! Whereas in Sweden, I always felt that even if you had a boyfriend, it's almost like a brother rather than a. You know what I mean? Because you're so on equal par, which is great in theory, don't get me wrong. <laughs> but actually, sometimes you need passion and excitement to feel like you're really a woman and there's a difference and there's. Yeah. And I wonder if she had an element of that as well.
1: I want to end this episode with a story about Ingrid from someone who had the good fortune to share some time with her, like my friend Anna wished for at the beginning, to spend one moment with the captivating Ingrid. It's 1982 and Bill McAllister is the director of the ICA, the Institute of Contemporary Arts, an inspiring home for contemporary visual arts, music, dance and theatre in London. Occasionally in the cinema at the ICA they would screen forgotten masterpieces and old classics. One day, Bill is sitting in his office on the fourth floor overlooking the mall up towards Buckingham Palace and he gets a phone call from his box office manager asking if he would like to have tea with Ingrid Bergman. Of course, he says, and hurries down. It turns out on this particular day, Ingrid Bergman, then 66 years old and living in London, had arrived at the box office to ask for a ticket to see Stromboli. But the very alert box office manager identified the star immediately and said... But Madam Bergman, we can't ask you to pay for a ticket. "'I'm sure the director would like us to give you a complimentary.' "'She went in to watch the film, and when she came out, "'she went up to the box-office manager and thanked him. "'And then she let him into a secret. "'She said, "'Do you know, I've never seen that film since I made it.' "'What a revelation. "'The box-office manager invited Ingrid to have tea with the director of the ICA, "'and Bill got to spend some time in her company.' At the end of their tea, Bill explained that the old cinema was going to be refurbished and invited her to cut the ribbon when it reopened in a couple of months. Ingrid happily agreed, giving the proviso, if I'm still alive. Ingrid Bergman did come and cut the ribbon and helped celebrate the newly refurbished cinema, despite being very ill. She died about a month later. Bill remembers their meeting as one of the most poignant things to happen to him during his time at the ICA. Back in February, seven months ago, I didn't imagine that I'd be creating a podcast episode about Ingrid Bergman during a global pandemic, but it has been a joy to have this wise, talented and fearless woman accompany me during this time. Thanks to her, I have written more letters and emails to my female friends, captured more films and images of my family, written a play that I was scared about writing, escaped to Casablanca, Italy and Sweden through her films, and have reinvigorated my commitment to the career I want to have. There is, of course, so much more to say about such a brilliant woman, but I hope the angle I have viewed her from for this Dash Arts podcast demonstrates her relevance and importance today. Thanks to the Dash Arts team, Natalie Beach, Christina Catalina and Josephine Burton for helping me create this and for supporting me throughout. I'm Sophie Austin and thanks you for listening.
6: Ingrid Bergman, Ingrid Bergman Let's go make a picture On the island of Stromboli Ingrid Bergman Ingrid Bergman, you're so pretty You'd make any mountain quiver You'd make fire fly from the crater Ingrid Bergman This old mountain It's been waiting all its life For you to work it For your hand to touch its hard rock In Great Bergman In Great Bergman If you walk across my camera I will flash the world your story I will pay you more than money Not by pennies, dimes, nor quarters But with happy sons and daughters And they'll sing around stromboli In Great Bergman This old mountain, it's been waiting all its life for you to work it For your hand to touch its hard rock Great Bergman. Great Bergman.